Cosmetic gynecology is quickly becoming one of the fastest growing subspecialties of elective surgery for women. Making physical alterations may help improve the physical appearance of the vulva, but are they safe? Today, Dr. Sherelle Iglesia and Dr. Bobby Garcia will help us understand this growing trend and whether it can benefit our sexual health. Welcome to Sex Care Self Care, a conversation on women's sexual health brought to you by the Patty Brisbane Foundation for Women's Sexual Health. I'm your host today, Patty Brisbane. Today we're discussing cosmetic gynecology. I'm joined by our guest, Dr. Cheryl Inglesia and Dr. Bobby Garcia. So, Dr. Inglesia, let's start with you. Can you introduce yourself? And can you tell our audience what you do on a daily basis? Uh, wonderful to be here, Patty. Uh, yes, I'm Sherelle Iglesia, and I am a urogynecologist. That is a person who specializes in disorders of the pelvic floor, pretty much anything below your belly button between your thighs. I'm a, um, I'm a division director at MedStar Health in, in Washington, D.C., and a professor of OBGYN and neurology um, at Georgetown University School of Medicine. On a daily basis, I take care of women with pelvic floor disorders, of incontinence, um, prolapse, and sexual, sexual uh, complaints. And I do a lot of surgery. Um, we've also been honored with um, and awarded our group with receiving some grants related to funding um, trials and randomized trials on cosmetic gynecology. So I'm happy to talk about that with you today. Thank you. Dr. Garcia. Yes, um, I'm Bobby Garcia. I'm a urogynecologist as well. I'm currently practicing in New York City, about maybe half a mile away from Yankee Stadium in the Bronx. I'm originally from South Texas. And so during my OBGYN residency, I was kind of trying to figure out what I was going to be most interested in. And that's when I first became aware of cosmetic gynecology. Um, and it seemed pretty interesting to me. But when I brought it up with my attendings and people in the hospital, they kind of shrugged it off as, you know, not real science or medicine. So I kind of went home and, and started Googling. And all I could find is basically advertisements and things that are fee for service, but, but no real kind of data behind it. Um, so I was kind of interested in that, but I put it in the back of my mind and I ended up going into urogynecology for fellowship. And during that time, during the urogynecology training, two years are directed at the clinical care and one year is directed at advancing research. And so when I was looking for a topic, I felt like cosmetic gynecology would be a perfect fit because it's something that people seem to be really interested in, but we don't know too much about. So, um, I sat to try to, uh, establish a framework for that. I like it. Kind of a pioneer. So it's a good thing. It's a great thing. Um, Dr. Iglesia, let's let's start with you. So can you tell our audience out there what cosmetic gynecology is? Yeah, I can tell you that. And also I can let you know that in 2022, um, uh, Dr. Garcia and I both uh, were on a writing group and we published a document that kind of outlines cosmetic gynecology and the terminology. So it's like the Bible for cosmetic gynecology. Um, and it was presented both to the American and the International Urogynecologic Society. So basically, 
These are elective procedures that can be done on the outside of the vulva, on your external genitalia, and also inside the vagina. And most of these are done to alter the aesthetic appearance of the external genitalia, the lips, clitoris, et cetera, the opening, and or, or also alter the functional um, uh, aspects of the vagina, all designed to improve the quality of, of a woman's life. The caveat of the definition of cosmetic gynecology is that there can't be any real overt pathology, you know, like you can't have something really wrong with the vagina, like say you have a prolapsing bladder. Now that is reconstructive surgery. That is a real functional pathology, <laughs> which we have codes for that insurance covers. Um, and there may be some other things on the vagina, like, like to repair female dental cutting. That is also covered um, by insurance. That would not be under the realm of cosmetic gynecology. Yeah. And I think people need to know that because the majority of probably what's being advertised to is there's actually reconstructive surgery codes um, that insurance covers that they're feeling loose, but that laxity is really related to like early prolapse, you know, and it's, it would right. be covered by insurance. You wouldn't necessarily have to pay $2,000 for an elective procedure. There you go. Uh, Dr. Garcia, it, it, are there different types of cosmetic procedures? And if so, what are they? Yeah, so uh, so, so just kind of adding and, and piggybacking on what Dr. Glessia said, you know, when most people think about cosmetic gynecology, the one thing that comes to mind is a labiaplasty or a reduction of the labia minora. Um, but in reality, there are countless procedures. So just like she was mentioning, any any part of the genitalia, the mons pubis, it can be the labia majora, the labia minora, the clitoral prepuce or the clitoral hood, which is the skin that covers the clitoris, the clitoris itself, and then and the vagina can all be included as uh, a possible cosmetic procedure. Now, in terms of what the end goal is, it really depends on the patient. Some patients may want things smaller. Some patients may want things to look a little bit bigger or more plump. And in some instances, you may want them to be narrowed down or tightened. And in terms of the way that we do this, we can offer different possible therapies. So there's surgical therapy, energy-based therapy using lasers. Um, you can inject implantables or fillers, and you can also do liposuction. So lots of different options. Wow. that's That sounds uh, awesome. Yeah. And you know um, about the fillers, Patty, like these are the functional things. They've been purported to improve your or enhance your sexual function, improve your orgasmic ability. People are people call this proprietary, the O-shot, the G-spot, uh, you know, amplification. Um, and they're using something that that's one of the studies that you're actually funding to see if this really works. I, right. I know because I think it's it's good because you have some docs out there that say, oh, no, don't do that. And then you have others who say, no, no, it's good. So if we could, you know, take this grant money and use this so people can be well informed before they make a decision, I think it's important. So I can't wait till that rolls in and we 
find the we get the findings on that. Um, Dr. Sherrill, why do you think that this has that this has become so popular? I know I've often thought about this, Patty, because I know that a large majority of people learn about sexual function through um, pornography. And mm-hmm. there has been, you know, and probably since the mid 1990s, lots of procedures have been done for hair removal and, and, and even in pornography, the images, I mean, you know, you get the full Brazilian. So without the hair, people get a, a look down there and then they're comparing mm-hmm. it to images that they see online and there's a lot of shaming that goes on. Like you got it in the movies, um, just in regular conversations, maybe with people in the locker room that things don't look like a Barbie doll. It doesn't look perfect. And as if there's supposed to be a, a, a perfect appearance of the um, vulva and the vagina and the clitoris and the labia. And it's down to the point that even people are, are concerned about the color you know, because once you remove the hair, some, some areas are dark, some areas are more pigmented, you know, so they want to be brightened. And so there'll be bleaching being done, skin lightening. Um, and this, this actually misconception that the vagina should be slit like with no labia majora protruding outside the labia minora. God forbid you should have uh, uh, yoga pants that show the outline of the labia majora and, they'll, and people will call you call you out on having camel toe, which is so crazy um, to me, but that, that that's, I, I don't know exactly. I sort of have looked at this, so I can't pinpoint it exactly when it's happened, but there is a movement. And I say, <laughs> I'd like to go back to our bodies ourselves where the big bush and the big lips come back. <laughs> Uh, you have to take a mirror our bodies yourself and try to see your, your cervix, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I don't think that's going to be happening anytime soon. Everything, everybody wants everything so pretty. So, yeah. okay, let me ask this. Um, Dr. Garcia, other than the change in appearance, are there really any benefits from having these procedures? Yeah, so you know that's a really interesting question because changing the physical appearance, it's it's the result, or actually it's a byproduct of cosmetic gynecology. But in reality, that's not the end goal, or it shouldn't be the end goal. The end goal should be in order to to improve the patient's quality of life, and that's what we're trying to do as physicians. Mm-hmm. That's what we're trying to do as cosmetic gynecologists. But you know, let's take this example of uh, a labiaplasty again, or a labia minora reduction, because that's you know, that's the hot topic. That's the most popular thing when people think cosmetic gynecology. So if a patient comes in and she says, well, I'm a little concerned about my labia minora or the lips because I feel like one's a little bit longer than the other. So the first question that kind of comes to mind is, you know, why are, are you, are you physically bothered by this? Or, or what is the reason that you're presenting? Because a lot of patients may, you know, they're looking at pornography or they're looking at, you know, other things and, and they think that they're abnormal. So a lot of times just a simple conversation to say, this is a normal variant. People have labia minora in different sizes and different shapes, and that's okay. And that will end the conversation there and, and it'll be completely done. 
But if she says, no, I'm still kind of bothered by it. I want you to do something. Then the next question is, aside from the cosmetic aspect, is there some sort of physical discomfort? Is it causing any sort of symptom that's interfering with her ability to function normally? Because if it if it right. does, and like Dr. Glessy was mentioning, at that point, it is no longer cosmetic. It's no longer cosmetic. There is a diagnosis code for that. And as, as we were talking about a little bit earlier, just before we started, the majority of the labiaplasties that I do, they all have some sort of uh, physical symptom. And so that allows me to be able to perform these, these procedures in my hospital. Um, but all those things aside, if the patient says, no, I still definitely want this done. This is 100% cosmetic. Can you please do it? Before we go forward, we need to figure out why. Like, why does she want this done? Is there anybody that's that's putting pressure on her? Is she trying to meet some sort of ideal? And and if you do this procedure, if you because you're going under the knife, you're taking a risk here. If you do this procedure, is it going to improve her quality of life? And if the answer is yes, if if she says, you know, once I get this taken care of, I'm just going to feel more comfortable in my own skin. I'm going to feel more confident in the bedroom, and maybe that even translates to improved sexual function. And we don't know because that study hasn't been done yet, but that would be an awesome study to do. If the answer is yes, and we think that we're going to be able to help her by doing this, then we move forward with the cosmetic surgery. But there's one caveat here. So it is a completely different ball game in cosmetics compared to traditional medicine. So if somebody has heart disease and they need to have uh, a triple bypass graft on, on their heart, they are willing to accept the risks versus the benefits because they are going to be terminally ill and potentially could have, uh, they could get really sick if they don't do the surgery. Cosmetic gynecology, completely different. The patient otherwise is medically normal. And so if she undergoes this procedure, the risk benefit ratio is a little bit skewed. And so that's something that you really need to consider before you move forward. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is there is risk involved every single time you're performing this type of surgery, correct? Mm, absolutely. That's right. Okay. And I, can, I can talk about those risks, Patty. I mean, um, because we're very aware as your gynecologist of the function uh, of all of these organs. And, you know, we have the traditional risks of surgery, which include pain, bleeding, and infection. But like, even for something as simple as a labiaplasty, and and some people will add a little clitoral hoodectomy or some kind of frenulum release. Okay, well, you are getting down to an area that has tens of thousands of nerves. When you start to start cutting this away, you can adversely impact a, a woman's sexual response, ability to arouse and orgasm, and it has been reported. Um, the other thing that I see is that there's scars that form, there's breakdowns that sometimes is the Swiss, the, the labia end up looking like Swiss cheese and holes in them. Oh, goodness. And then when you tie it in with some vaginal rejuvenation procedures or these vaginoplasties, the women get so tight that every time you try to have sex, you actually rip and it's now causing significant pain uh, because you want it to be, you know, quote unquote, a virgin again, or whatever they, the, the thought was. The other thing that becomes really concerning 
is that some people feel that you're become a virgin again, you need to have a hymen. Well, we, you know, hymens, and we've had, we have talks with come in all different shapes, sizes, and absence and presence, and trying to reconstruct that to make someone look that is just wrong. <laughs> and you can't tell if someone's been sexually active or inactive with the presence or absence of a hymen. I just want to say it right now, um, because that can also cause a lot of issues with pain and with blockages of important glands um, that are necessary for lubrication. And I want to say um, what concerns me, particularly when you're operating on women who are like 16, I haven't even fully developed. What happens mm-hmm. to these women now when they reach menopause and there is a natural shrinkage that occurs with the genital urinary syndrome of menopause is going to be a concern to me. So I don't know, Bobby, I, <laughs> I have a different take on it because, you know, I, I really, we do, I do a lot of reconstructive pelvic surgery, like a lot. And that's what I focus on. And I feel like this is all conflated that most of the time there, there's legitimate things that we can do with procedures that have high levels of evidence on benefits with, you know, over risks. And it's not the same here in cosmetic. Let me ask you this, Dr. Garcia. If if someone out there is listening and is hellbent on doing a procedure, what type of doctor do they make an appointment with? And would every single doctor that they were to see, would they give them the, the risk that they might be looking at if having this type of procedure done? Right. So um, it's, it, that's a really timely question, actually, because in two days, um, I'm going to be giving a talk for the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists in UK. And, and they asked me to talk on cosmetic gynecology and the role of the plastic surgeon versus the urogynecologist. Um, so it's a really interesting topic. Um, and it's definitely a very thorny area because there's a lot of... Um, politics and specialty opinions, a little bit of a turf war going on, but breaking it down, the plastic surgeon is the master of cosmesis and aesthetics, but they travel the entire body. That includes the face, that includes the the, the arms, the trunk, the genitalia, but overall that is their specialty, making things look good. Now, the OBGYN and the urogynecologist, on the other hand, our area of expertise is the pelvis. That's what we know best and we know it better than anybody else. So then the question then becomes, for someone undergoing a cosmetic procedure, is it better to go to the plastic surgeon or to the urogynecologist? And potentially the answer is both, but most likely it is neither. So the one kind of concept that I want to present here is the idea of a high volume surgeon. And we see this in all aspects of medicine. So if you have a world-class skier or you have an NBA basketball player and they sustain a knee injury and they need knee surgery, they're not going to go to somebody. They're not going to go to an orthopedic surgeon that only does 12 knees a year and they spend the rest of their time, you know, doing shoulders or something else, they are going to go to the best of the best. And who is the best of the best? It's usually the person that's doing hundreds and hundreds of these cases every single year. Now, 
if you need orthopedic surgery, you need, you need your knee redone. That's a pretty easy question to answer because you can go online and you can figure out the center of excellences across the country where they have the best arthroscopic surgeons to offer you a solution. That is not the case in cosmetic gynecology. In cosmetic gynecology, it is basically a wild west. And again, if you Google cosmetic gynecology, you're going to have a million different plastic surgeons, gynecologists, in some case, dentists or dermatologists that are offering to do this. And they say the results are good, but you just don't know. And it's all going to be for a fee, a cash-based fee. So the one piece of advice that I would offer is if a woman is very interested in doing this, to make sure she does her research. And in terms of doing her research, what that means is when you sit down with the, the physician who's offering this to say, how many of these have you done in the last year? What are your outcomes like? Do you have any before and after pictures? What um, What is your risk complication versus other people's risk complication? And if the answer is, oh, I read about it once and I think you know, I, I've done a few in the course of my 30-year career, that's not the person that you want to go to. Now, one other caveat that I want to bring in here is the field of cosmetic gynecology is much smaller than other fields. It is urogynecology in itself, what we do on a day in and day out basis, Dr. Glessie and myself, it is a niche to begin with. But then when you come into cosmetic gynecology, that is even a smaller percentage of the entire population. Again, there are a million people who need knee surgeries. There are, there are, the majority of women will need to deliver a baby at some point. So you have obstetricians who do that. But in terms of cosmetic gynecologists, the number of procedures that are done is, are very few. Have to find somebody who knows what they're doing and who does a lot. There you go. So, okay, Dr. Glacia, let me ask you this question. So I know there's a lot of, you know, if there are women out there that are looking for this particular type of surgery, they want to save money or whatever. Um, do you recommend them going out of the country to do this? Or how would you search for a really good cosmetic surgeon? So yeah, to- I, okay. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about what you shouldn't be doing. So there are so many people just Google vaginal rejuvenation designer vagina lips or whatever designer laser. You'll find many because many of these people are using energy-based devices that Bobby said there are lasers, there's uh, wands, radio frequency devices. These these devices are very expensive. I mean they're on the order of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And what I want people to be aware of when they go to these laser spas or wellness spas, and some people may also be doing, you know, tattoo removal and hair removal and all of that. Then they'll, they'll go into the vaginal rejuvenation. Walk away if someone doesn't have a table that you actually can put stirrups in and can put a real speculum in. And because I am telling you, you're going to pay $2,000 for your, I want to wash this relationship out and get my vagina rejuvenated. And that you have all this stuff in there. If you put creams in or something, that's not going to work because now all the mirrors are getting, it doesn't work. And you need to get a pelvic exam to make sure that this is healthy tissue. (laughs) I'm very concerned about that because I know that in some of these day spas, wellness spas, laser centers, they just have Mm -hmm. 
text doing this. You are paying $2,000 for someone to go in and put a wand in the thing, and they have no clue how to use the buttons on the machine and what all that means and what are the alternatives. What I want someone to say when you're going to see someone for a gynecologic procedure, whether it be cosmetic or reconstructive, you must be given alternatives. There cannot be one size fits all that they didn't offer. They offered me the laser, but they didn't say, hey, vaginal estrogen may work. Or, hey, you know, you really have a normal vagina. There's just a little bit of prolapse here. Or this thing about your leakage, let's work with pelvic floor physical therapists. Maybe we can use a medicine. Maybe we can use um, an, an injection that's covered by insurance. Maybe Botox is the answer. Maybe we do need surgery that is also covered by insurance to be done by a high volume surgeon. Those are the red flags for me because I've seen so many people who have now come in, but they have paid that $2,000 for a procedure with their prolapse hanging down to their knees that that was never going to work in the first place. And they just got duped. And it's very upsetting to them and to me. (laughs) You can't can't believe everything that you hear or read on the internet. And you've got to be very cautious and ask the right questions and go to the right people. In this country Um, or in another country, Patty. (laughs) You're exactly right. You're exactly right. Um, So, Dr. Garcia, I know we kind of touch base with insurance. So, some of these procedures could be covered maybe through insurance? Yes. Cosmetic um, procedures? So I, I work for uh, the city of New York, a public city hospital, um, and I actually end up doing quite a bit of cosmetic surgery, I'll say. So uh, based on that last question that, that um, Dr. Glessie was just answering, a lot of my cosmetic procedures stem from patients who came from the Dominican Republic, and uh, well, I took out filler from the labia majora a few months ago, and um, it, was, it was some sort of silicone-based injection they had put in there. Um, and recently, uh, about two weeks ago, I did a labiaplasty revision for somebody who had a procedure done in India and the cosmetic result just wasn't quite what they wanted. And so um, I end up doing a lot of cosmetic procedures from that angle. And the other the other point is, you know, a lot of times if people have a cosmetic concern, a lot of times it's not just a cosmetic concern. There is a physical discomfort or there's an issue with intercourse. The labia minora, they get trapped during intercourse or they have difficulty exercising and it's causing them discomfort. And when that happens, again, it shifts into the realm of uh, a medical pathology. And then this can be covered under insurance. Now, there is a little bit of a conflict of interest here because for physicians who are out in private practice, they can either have this covered by insurance or they can charge $4,000, $5,000, $6,000 to have a cosmetic procedure or to offer a cosmetic procedure. So that is another thing that I want patients um, and listeners to be aware of when they're coming through. One of the questions they should have is, can this be covered by insurance? Can we put this through insurance or is this purely cosmetic? And that will help them figure out whether this is something that they need or something that they may want. Got it. Interesting. Um, Here's another question. Uh, Dr. Iglesias, how does the vulva 
our uh, vagina hill following these cosmetic procedures. And generally, how long does it take for you to return back to normal function? Well, you know, Patty, it depends on the uh, procedure that's being done. I I do want to say that um, for those who are getting uh, stuff like energy-based treatments with lasers and 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 radio frequency wands, generally speaking, um, that is kind of low risk. There's very few reports of burns and 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 whatnot, um, and so a lot of the the laser treatments that you do on the outside, because you know most of the nerves are by the clitoris and what's called the vestibule, like eighty percent of your nerves are there. Um, you have to numb that up, like for twenty to thirty minutes before you do any kind of laser. Like we have that lichen sclerosis trial that we're funding, which is not cosmetic, but we do, we, we numb that up for a, a while because it's very highly sensitive um, prior to putting in, um, you know, using fractionated laser. Um, but apart from that, the vagina itself heals very well. When you go into the actual surgical procedures and you're cutting like along the clitoris and along the labia, even along the labia majora, you do have to be careful because there could be wound breakdown, you know, where where we, we urinate, we defecate, you got to keep the air real clean. Uh, there's a lot of swelling that goes on. Sometimes these sutures can break down. Um, and so there has to be some aftercare depending on the extent of it. Usually it's only, you know, two to four weeks or so. Um, when we do reconstructive surgery and we're reconstructing for prolapse doing major reconstruction in the vagina, we usually say people um, should um, you know, not have anything inserted for about six weeks. Kind of like after you have, you've similar. given birth. Similar. Similar. Yeah. similar. But sometimes um, it takes three months. I mean, if you're very low on estrogen, some of these sutures are not going to dissolve. And, you know, sometimes it takes three months. Yeah. And so you do, like if your patient comes in and mm-hmm. would you be able upon the examination of this patient and say, Hey, it might take as long as three months before yeah. you return back. to normal. Good. Sometimes. sometimes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, let me ask, is there anything that you want to tell our listeners out there that they should know about cosmetic gynecology? Is there anything else that both of you would like to add to this? Um, sure. So I, I have a couple of points that I want to add. So first of all, I think cosmetic gynecology, it gets a really bad rap. And in some instances, it's justified. Um, but in some instances, it's not necessarily justified. So one of the main reasons for that is that there's a lack of research. And a reason for that is that it's very hard to objectively quantify an adult. Now, you can do that with standardized questionnaires and a very rigorous, well-designed clinical trial. But there's two main kinds of doctors um, that are practicing in the United States. So one group is academic and one group is in private practice. The acad- And in both cases, they're helping patients. But the focus with the academic, pa- the academic physicians is to advance research. And so they are setting up clinical trials to set that up. Now, in the realm of cosmetic gynecology and and plastic surgery, for that matter, cosmetic plastic surgery, that generally takes place in the private practice world, where the focus is seeing patients and getting the best aesthetic result possible. 
So as a result of that, you don't necessarily have the data that you would um, with other topics. The one point that I want to stress again is it is if you do decide to have cosmetic surgery, and there is nothing wrong with that, if if you think that that is going to improve your quality of life, make sure you go to a high volume surgeon. Um, and the last point, and we've kind of skirted around this a little bit, but I do want to address the different cosmetic procedures. They are not all created equally. Okay, so in in particular here, I'm talking about injectable procedures that are purporting or claiming to improve sexual function. So this is something that we do not know very much about. And there may be some data that's available, but a lot of it is biased and it may not be the best quality data. And so in this particular instance, I'm talking about one type of procedure, and this is injection of material called PRP or platelet-rich plasma into an area called the G-spot. Dr. Glissa, do you want to take over here? Well, yeah. I mean, it's been claimed and people are paying hundreds, if not thousands of dollars to draw, get their blood drawn. There's the, there's the plasma, there's a platelet-poor plasma, and then there's a platelet-rich plasma. And there's usually, you draw off like 60 cc's, two ounces of blood, spin it down, you get that platelet-rich plasma and you're supposed to inject it back in um, to the G-spot. So beautifully enough, the Patty's Brisbane Foundation has funded two trials, not one, but two trials looking at this in premenopausal and postmenopausal women were injecting either the platelet-rich plasma or saline, a placebo. This is the kind of information that we need to do because obviously if it works, then we're going to let people know. But if it doesn't and more more study, then we need to we need to frame it in that way. And that's the beauty of the Patty Brisbane Foundation. Um, and Bobby and I have worked on some protocols uh, based on this. Um, some of my partners are involved in this trial. And I basically want to emphasize, you know, don't believe everything that you read out there. And, you know, do your due diligence. You can even ask people on the Patty Brisbane Foundation and our medical advisory board. But most importantly, not everybody's the same. And there are many anatomic variants <laughs> that it, nothing looks like the Barbie doll. There is That is not an ideal vulva or vagina. And unless it's causing you some distress or discomfort or real bother, um, you know, it probably is okay. And so, you know, or... There could be something that is actually covered by insurance that we know about or a, another condition for which we have effective and safe treatments. There you go. That's I think it. all of that information is important. And I think the grants that we're given is, mm -hmm. is, is needed because we want to make sure that people have the facts before they go out and they do something that can create harm down the road. Um, right now, I want to thank a book. Yes, that too. I want to thank my guests, Dr. Sherelle Inglesia and Dr. Bobby Garcia for a great conversation. And if you like what you heard today, please rate and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on the Patty Brisbane Foundation for Women's Sexual Health and our focus areas, visit thepattybrisbanefoundation.org. Remember, 
Sex care is self-care and sexual health matters.